You're listening to HR Mavericks, a weekly podcast featuring leading small business HR professionals who share their experiences and insights to help you know how to turn your HR processes and employee experience into a strategic business advantage. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the next episode of HR Mavericks. I'm your host, Garrett Justice, and today I'm joined by Elisa Garn, who's the VP of Digital Brand at GBS Benefits and also the Executive Director of Utah Sherm. Elisa, how are you doing today? I'm so good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you on. It's it's great to be able to talk to you and excited to, to dive into kind of extract all that wealth of HR knowledge that I know that you have. So, you know, before we jump in, why don't you give our listeners a little bit more background on your career so far and also what your company does? Sure. So I've been an HR practitioner, give or take about 16 years. Uh, I pivoted right before COVID, February of last year, into more of this branding, you know, thought evangelist uh, about progressive modern HR um, doing digital brands and branding and marketing with uh, an employer benefits broker company. Um, but early in my career, like I, I feel like I've been there, done that, and can relate to just about any level of HR professional. Mm-hmm. I started very resistant to even getting in HR. Uh, I had to be pulled very forcefully into the profession by a great mentor of mine, uh, but started with the basics, payroll benefits, compliance, uh, employment law, all the way up to you know strategy and HR leadership. I did a lot of recruiting, including both corporate recruiting and agency recruiting, um, which eventually led into more of like employer branding and helping employer of choice type strategy and aligning those business outcomes of, we wanna be a great place to work, but we also wanna get the best outcome of our people, uh, which led to where I am now in more of that branding space, but still heavily tied and connected to the HR, uh, HR industry. Awesome. Well, for those of you, if you're not familiar with Lisa, you should check her out, her profile on LinkedIn, because she is definitely a thought leader in the space. I love, I love seeing all your posts because they're super thought provoking, very, very valuable. So excited again to, to dive in and kind of extract some of that HR knowledge that you have. And, you know, to, to really jump into that, I want to talk more, I want to double click on, you know, you said you got pulled into that HR career. So tell us a little bit more about the story of why did you choose to pursue a career in HR? Uh, well, I chose not to three times, <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. So early, 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 you know, when you have your teenage jobs and it's really terrible jobs and you're making minimum wage and dealing with the general public, um, mm-hmm. learning your life lessons about how to be an adult. Um, I, I had worked at a call center for a couple of years and I did really well in member services, meeting customer service, basically, you know, mm-hmm. talking people off a ledge of trying to cancel their gym membership because <laughs> they couldn't, they were legally mm-hmm. obligated, but I did really well in that position and ended up getting a leadership role where I managed the entire customer service team, which was about 70 different individuals. And I'm 19 years old. Like I had no training in it. I had no idea what I was doing. And I'm managing people older than me with more experience than I had. And uh, again, with no training or resources, it it was a difficult position to be in. I gained a lot from there. But part of that role, even though I was an acting, you know, working manager and I had my own responsibilities and still did some of the customer service myself, that was my first introduction to hey, you're responsible for some HR functions without knowing that I was doing HR. So I did Mm -hmm. recruiting and hiring, but I also had to manage 
performance and uh, was able to uh, to introduce a new compensation program for incentives. Mm-hmm. It was it was introduction again without knowing that I was doing it. After I left that job, this was when newspapers were still a thing. I was like scouring the the job ads and saw that there was a seasonal HR admin position for a local ski resort here in Utah. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life, but if I can ski for free for a season. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up getting that job and I reported to the payroll benefits manager who reported to the HR director. At the end of that ski season, my immediate boss ended up getting let go. So the HR director came to me and offered me her position. And I was like, thank you very much, but no way. I have no interest in being the principal's office of of the business. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be the one that people avoid in the hallway, that all of the whisper stops when at the water cooler when I Mm -hmm. wasn't conducive to my personality. And I just didn't, I didn't want to do that. Uh, But what was amazing about this mentor of mine was at this point, I'm 20, maybe, you know, still Mm -hmm. really, really young in my career. And he would have these one-on-ones with me. And I'm in my formal exit interview where I'm like, look, you've asked me three times. I've said, no, I'm out mm-hmm. in my very last interview. He said, look, I know that you don't want to do this and I'm not going to force you to stay, but you should know the reason that I think that you have such a, a potential career in HR is not because I think that you're great at alphabetizing employee files. You know, the mm-hmm. reason that I think that you have a great career here." is because you're excellent at connecting with people. You're really good with emotional intelligence. You see the value of how to get the most out of people with, you know, intrinsic motivation. And he he was able to identify these very, very specific traits that quite hmm. frankly, I mean, you want to talk about vanity. <laughs> like nobody's ever paid attention to me enough to notice that I do these things. So I was already feeling like a million bucks that somebody was giving me these amazing compliments but also it opened my eyes to what HR was outside of sort of sort of the Toby Flenderson view of what I had always thought it was. Yeah. Um, and so having somebody that that had invested in me and saw me through those eyes, I was like, man, I'm going to walk through fire for you. Like, let's do this thing. I ended mm-hmm. up staying on for three seasons with this manager of mine. He taught me everything from strategic planning to manager training to onboarding to the importance of connecting with candidates in the recruiting process. I mean, everything that I learned early on in my career was in these three years with this mentor of mine. And we're still friends today. I mean, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago when he was accepting another job down in Tucson, Arizona. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was, again, over 16 years ago. So um, it's been really, really rewarding. And I talk about that often, how important it is to have those professional mentors along your career journey. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's such a good story too. I think that I agree. It's so, it's so important to be able to have mentors, people like that, who can help show you the ropes and maybe change perception sometimes, because we all have kind of tweaked perceptions of whether it's our careers or others. Right. Um, and so that's, that's great hearing that story. So that's kind of what got you into HR. What's kept you in HR? for the, for the last part of your career? You know, you, you mentioned you kind of had this shift a little bit where you're focused a little bit more on, you know, digital brand for a benefits company, but, you know, up till net, up till just recently, you know, your entire career has really been focused on HR. So what, what really kept you in that space? Well, it's, that's a, I love the question because even though I'm doing digital branding and marketing now, I am here at an employer broker because I still want to be in HR. I mean, Mm -hmm. even though I've left HR practitioner and I'm not doing, 
you know, filing FLSA or FMLA paperwork or processing payroll today, it's still so heavily what I care about and my passion. And I think early on, very early in my career, what kept me in it was I was good at it. I, I was able to to provide value in a way that I felt competent, um, keeping people safe and compliant and knowing that I was doing right by the business and taking orders exceptionally well and seeing them through to where the the duck on top of the water, right? Like the paddle below mm-hmm. where it was just crazy, but nobody saw that. And I found a lot, I took a lot of pride in that. Eventually though, the evolution of what kept me in it as I progressed was the added visibility to truly the impact that the HR profession has on humanity. I talk about this in a way that for me, it gives me goosebumps because this is not just bullshit that I feed people of mm-hmm. HR is such a great job. HR is a shitty job. Day mm-hmm. in and day out, <laughs> you are so underappreciated. You're so undervalued. People don't actually understand what you do. And even if you explain it, they don't care because it's not something that directly affects them until it affects them. And then it's a problem and you have to go solve it. But what I care about in this big picture way of when I say that it's such an impact on humanity, the, the, the amount of time that we spend at work, and that could be in a remote setting, it could be in an office, it could be on an airplane when you're answering emails, it could mm-hmm. be the stress that you take home with you when you're not able to sleep at night because you got an email from your boss that said, hey, let's talk tomorrow. Work is so entrenched in our daily lives and how much time mentally and physically we exhaust there that it impacts everything else in our environment, our personal relationships, our marriages, how we parent, the kind of neighbors that we are, the community engagement that we support and show up for. Work is responsible for so much of our viewpoints and engagement there. And the HR function inside the business is really the, other than the manager relationship, is the primary facilitator of what that employee journey looks like. Yeah. So when I say that it has this monumental opportunity to improve the world, you know, better workplaces for a better world, it re- like that's that's not hyperbole to me. Like that yeah. is truly a- an amazing career path that you just don't have in any other function of the business. It's like you can you can shape a employee handbook or an onboarding experience or mm-hmm. the way that you even manage compensation practices that shape an individual's life to, you know, to like how they take that home. Um, I think that's an amazing calling to have, and it's not right for everyone. Um, I I do a lot of coaching on getting people out of HR Mm because I think a lot of people get in HR because they like people and then they do HR and it's like, you know what? I actually don't really like people. They're kind of the worst. Mm -hmm. It's because (laughs) we're constantly surrounded by dealing with the aftermath of when things go wrong Right. And just like in retail or customer service, you get an element of somebody when they're not at their best. But if you can't approach this profession with a level of compassion and empathy and humanity of putting yourself in other people's shoes and understanding the complexity of how we are as humans and what's happening in the world these days, you're not going to be an effective HR leader. And that doesn't matter if you're a strategist or a tactician. It, you will not be successful in HR if you don't look at things through a human lens. Yeah. So, that's, yeah, no, that's, that's what kept me in it. That's really interesting hearing you say that. And I, I want to ask you this question too, just because of all of your background and career in HR and you know, recently moving into more of this digital branding marketing role. It sounds like hearing about kind of your journey that 
in many, in many cases at many companies, HR has a branding problem, right? It's perceived as something different than how I just heard you describe that. So would you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that is? And, and how do we go about changing that perception of the value that HR can really provide for companies? Well, I agree with it to the 10th degree. And unfortunately, how HR shows up in media doesn't do us any favors, right? Like I already referenced yeah. the Toby Flenders and thing. Yeah. Uh, but most people, when they do think of or have an experience with HR, it is it tends to be pretty transactional. Anybody that's listening to this, whether they are doing HR right now or are an employee or you know have an interest in this topic anyway, can think of a time where they interfaced with an HR professional. And I would say arguably 80 to 85% of those reaction responses are either going to be neutral or negative. Hmm. When it comes to rebranding the profession, like we have to change the lens that we approach our profession. So much of what we've done, first of all, is highly, highly submissive. We are so used to taking orders and executing orders from managers, from executive teams. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't be an element of our role. Like we're not necessarily... CEOs, otherwise we would be CEOs, but we're also the voice of the people element of the business, which if you want to talk financials, like if you want to get into CEO CFO language, that's the number one expense item on any P&L, on any financial statement, it's salaries, wages, and benefits, and that's your people. So if you're not looking at it through the lens of, okay, well, how do we capitalize on getting the most out of that one particular expenditure, then you're already doing a disservice, but most HR people don't think in that language. So what happens is you have these, you know, I'll equate it to like two different planets. You have Mars and Venus. You've got your executives on Mars and you've got your HR talent on Venus and they want the same things. And they'll sometimes even visit each other's planets and come and check things out. And then, you know, they want to visit your territory, but they come over and they're speaking their own language and getting frustrated because you don't understand what they're saying. And so they end up taking their rocket ship back to their own planet. I feel like it's unfair to put all of the burden on one or the other But in my experience, like if you want somebody else to understand you, that responsibility is on you, not them. So being able to find shared language or find opportunities where you can speak in in a dialect that they'll understand understand, or through needs or values that they want. If you want to change the reputation of the role that you have in a company, you have to be able to talk about and articulate that value in a way that the other party understands it. Yeah. Um, so I use this analogy sometimes uh, in an article that I wrote last year for Forbes, where I describe these three personas of HR. Um, and there's probably more out there, but these are the three most prevalent ones. So you have traffic cop HR, city planner HR, and mayor HR. Mm-hmm. City planner, traffic cop HR people are highly reactive. They usually have a candy jar on their desk. They're kind of used to being the the therapy psychologist of the organization, but they're so busy with the day-to-day that gets thrown at them. They're fighting fires all the time. They're they're enforcing compliance and handbooks and policy, but a lot of the personal value that they get is out of keeping people safe. So directing traffic, blowing their whistle, telling people which direction to go, but they're so busy doing that, that it would be risky for them to take themselves out of it and look at the city and say, you know, what if we put in additional stoplights over here? What if we change the traffic pattern? Because then all of a sudden, all of the traffic just starts to just mush together. And then there's accidents and, you know, things aren't getting taken care of. So it's necessary. And by the way, most MBA programs for CEOs and executives 
that's the HR that they get taught in their program. It's like four <laughs> weeks. Yeah. So when you get to this size, make sure that you, you know, you're not yeah. getting sued and you're following the laws. City planner HR people are usually heads up. It could be a CFO. It could be a chief people officer. It could be a VP director. Sometimes it's even a manager or a generalist title doesn't matter as much, but they have ultimate responsibility over the HR function of the organization. So they tend to be more strategy focused. They're thinking two to five years down the road. They're looking at business objectives. They're talking merger acquisition activity. They're thinking infrastructure, organizational development design. Where are we going to build the next residential neighborhood? Where do we need to put in you know, additional lighting and plumbing as the company grows? Um, but they tend to be pretty disconnected from the day-to-day and the pulse of the organization because either it's not their talent or there's just so many layers in the company that they don't have time and resources or it's just not the emphasis of their job. Then you have mayor HR people, and these are like your extroverts. A lot of times they're in talent, recruiters. They're super, super good at connecting with people. They love being out, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies. Um, and let's just assume that for the sake of this podcast, that politics are noble and, and these are good mayors. <laughs> but their whole point is, I want everyone to know what a great place this is to live or in the analogy to work. Um, So they usually have an emphasis on employer branding. Uh, They understand the value of journey mapping and looking at what, what are these critical touch points of an employee working here? How do we make sure that we're reinforcing the work that is going to challenge them to, you know, match business initiatives. I'm not going to say that it's the most important role in HR, in my opinion, but I do think it's the most progressive. So you a lot of times see these type of positions highly valued in tech companies or those that have a very difficult time attracting and retaining talent because they've they've understood they have to adapt to the needs of the employees. And it's an employee candidate driven market right now. So when you think about these three parallels of like, okay, so how do you change the role of HR in a company? For one, this has been a super powerful analogy to use with the C-suite. Because everybody can get it on some level of like, okay, you know, I get the gist. I don't work in politics or in city planning, but like I get the gist. Um, The most powerful thing that I've been able to use this for is asking an executive of these three, which do you personally value most in your organization that's going to help you drive business results? And usually I get one of two answers. First answer is, well, I want all three. Then it's like, good luck finding your cute little purple unicorn that's fits glitter because that's not happening. The second response that I'll get is, well, I have a traffic cop, but I want a city planner. The mayor sometimes is just not a big prevalent part of the conversation at the sea level because, again, it's not in their language. It's not connecting to the ROI of things like employer branding and some of these other performance uh, type metrics because that's still very, very new to their landscape, but the city planners, they definitely get. Um, and the and, and they're usually really frustrated with traffic cop, even though they're the ones that put them in that role to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's fun though, is when I share this with the HR professionals and I'll get so many messages after of like, oh my gosh, I'm a traffic cop and I have been trying so hard to become a mayor. <laughs> what I love is when they give me a follow-up message to say, I went into my CEO and I had this discussion and I shared this example and we were able to have a really open discussion about my career path here, what I'm doing now. Like I don't, you shouldn't be going to your CEO and say, look at my job description. Do you know that I do all of these things and pinpointing to the level of detail that we do as HR people, that's not speaking in their language. That's speaking in our language. 
But when we go in and say, look, most of my emphasis right now is reacting to things in the company, which means I don't have time to align with the business strategy or go out and understand these elements of our business or learn more about our sales channels. Now, all of a sudden you're getting attention that you want to, you want to be, you're like elevating your role because you're speaking at a level that is more strategic, that is more engaged. And you're not just coming with problems. You're coming with solutions. I love that. Such a great, great analogy. And so as I kind of summarize and think about, you know, what I pull out of that, it sounds like going back to the original question about, you know, how do we change that perception of HR in a company? It sounds like that needs to be in two different directions. The first direction is to the C-suite. How do you elevate the importance of HR and gain more credibility with HR in the C-suite and speak the language of your CEO or your CFO and help them understand the, the different roles that HR can play and get their feedback on what roles they should play, right? A lot of times HR isn't elevated to the the level of C-suite there. And so when you can speak their language and help them understand that, you can kind of reorient. And I think the second piece of that is that can also help change the perception from employees that employees have on what HR cares about, what they're focused on. They're not just the bad guy anymore that you have to be quiet around at the water cooler, kind of like you mentioned before, right? But they can really focus on what you talked about at the beginning, what's kept you in the role of HR is you can have an impact on improving the experience for employees and improving their lives. Is there anything I missed from that? No, that was much more succinct than the way I said it. So thank you. <laughs> no, it's great. I love I love that. So I, I wanna I wanna just you know follow up one more time um, and kind of double click on the last piece of that then because I know there's a topic that you speak about a lot that I've seen you post a lot about, which is human experience. And you know, there's a lot of terms thrown around in the HR world. There's so many terms for the tools and the systems and everything else, right? And employee experience is a big one, but you've chosen to really focus on talking about human experience. So talk to me a little bit about what's the difference in your mind between human experience and employee experience, and why have you chosen to to speak a lot about human experience? Well, both are really important. They are different. In my view, employee experience tends to be more through the view of what's in it for the company. So yes, you're looking at how the different things that you, you know, everything from your policies to your benefits, to your environment, like, yes, that does affect the employee experience, but it's still, like I said, very company mindset. Whereas human experience, it doesn't just center around work, but I like to, again, I obviously speak in a lot of parables and analogies. I think of it like the iceberg, right? Like when we, when we step over the threshold and go into our workplaces, Most of the time, the expectation is I only want to see your top of the iceberg stuff. I want to, you know, like I'm paying attention to your resume and your background and your experience and what companies you've worked for and how you're going to be able to perform and uh, add talent to our our organization and our goals. But every time we step over that threshold, there is a huge chunk of that iceberg that's under the waterline that's coming with us. Hmm. And this is everything from you know, human experience is all about how we've interpreted our own life experiences and how it's shaped how we view the world. Um, so this can include our relationships, our childhood, our upbringing, our, our faith, our religion, uh, cultural nuances, 
um, just everything that is our makeup of, of how we perceive and experience the world is that encapsulating human experience phrase. The reason I care so much about it is because we live in a world that is highly individualized at every turn, right? Like I can call, I can get on my phone right now and order DoorDash and it'll be here in 10 minutes on an app that, you know, like I'll get exactly what I want and I don't, I'm not at the mercy of going to a cafeteria and getting whatever is on the menu. Personalization has become a part of our world in virtually every capacity with the exception of healthcare and work. (laughs) So being at the forefront and the cutting edge of, if you can understand that concept to create more human centric workplaces, not only are you going to be a better employer to work for with, you know, much more sustainability and an ability to attract great talent, but the, the contribution that you're creating to a more human-like world. I'm not saying that you have to individualize a job for every single person. There's, there's much more to this topic, but things like understanding what is the environmental impact for an individual. If I had a quick, quick little story example here, um, you know, my husband works for a government entity and we talk about our physical workspace sometimes (laughs) where, I have this beautiful, bright office with lots of windows and, you know, new furniture. And our company has done a great job of investing in this physical space. And I love it. I love coming to work and like, you know, seeing just this open space and it feels so bright and vibrant. And my husband, they also just built a new building, but it's completely encapsulated in brick and walls. And they've just like painted it beige everywhere. We call it, (laughs) well, I won't tell you what we call it, but um when we talk about this environment, like the dim lights, the fluorescent lighting, the lack of natural light, the um, like even just it's something as silly as like the bat that's so quiet in the office that when somebody uses the bathroom, you can hear it sitting at your desk. Like that's disruptive. Yeah. And it's a silly little thing, but like as one facet of human experience, like it's it's one thing that's now affecting my ability to engage in my work because it's yeah. distracting and it's annoying. And I don't feel like I'm valued because you're putting me in this box and saying, look, we're giving you a physical space to work. What else do you want? Um, all the way to other experiences of, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and trauma lately about racial tensions and uh, my goodness, like vaccinations are a thing again, right? Like, should I, shouldn't I, the mask thing during the pandemic, you have all of these polarized views and we, as, as most citizens, I wouldn't even say in the U S but I think globally in the world, are not naturally taught how to have healthy conflict. So we end up being almost positioned and conditioned to choose a side. Hmm. It's you either root for BYU or University of Utah. Like there's no in between. Beaver State doesn't mm-hmm. even exist to these people. Like, <laughs> no, are you red or are you blue? Um, and you can't, like, not taking a side, you get viewed as a fence sitter. And it's like, no, like, you need to have a backbone and you need to make a choice here. Which side do you support? Um, And having that kind of mentality and then additionally, you layer on the fact that we don't know how to have this healthy conflict of being able to disagree with each other and share opinions in a in a space where this is from a place of learning or educating, but really just defensiveness of trying to like just drill down and double down on I'm right and you're wrong. Um, That has created a lot of disruption in the workplace when it comes to this idea and concept of human experience, because I'm not seeing it through your lens anymore. I'm seeing it through mine. So if you tell me that Utah is not a diverse state um, because, you know, we have whatever, less than 10% population that's not white, 
well, we're still diverse, but you're seeing it through your lens of where you live, where you work, where you grocery shop. You go down to Rose Park, for example, you're going to see diversity. It's mm-hmm. just we're seeing it through our own personal lens and experience and claiming that as fact mm-hmm. instead of reaching out and leaning into somebody else's viewpoint and lens of what might look a little bit differently. Uh, and anyway, as that manifests at work, you can imagine I mean, it's it's everything, right? Like, especially yeah. if you're the one that's responsible for managing the work of others or determining what benefits are being offered. If you're doing it through your own lens and not the lens of your people, it's going to be probably not nearly as successful. Yeah. Fascinating. It's such, such really good thought provoking, um, stuff to think about. And, you know, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about, you know, there's so many small local businesses out there that have, you know, the solo HR person, they're the only HR person there. They're responsible for every HR function under the sun and, you know, trying to apply what we've talked about today for those individuals. I mean, it's a tall task. It's how do we, so often there's so much of their time is spent as the, as the traffic cop or on administrative HR work. How do you get people to sign their paperwork? How do you make sure people get paid, which is important stuff. But if, if I'm thinking about, you know, what we talked about today and how do we apply that? I think a lot of times the challenge for those individuals is how do you do that administrative HR stuff well, but then transition to focus on some more strategic HR work, which is like elevating the role of HR or the perception of HR to the executive team and to employees and improving the employee and human experience that employees are having. And that's when HR becomes really impactful. When you can, when you can get the administrative stuff done, which is still important, but not only do that, you can elevate the role of HR to focus on some more of the strategic work, like, like what you just talked about. And I think that that's, it's a big, it's a big challenge. It's a big task, especially for those small business HR people that are kind of alone on, on their, on their Island, you know, but I think that that's, that's the, the challenge of, um, that HR faces in those small businesses. And so to that point, um, what's the, what's the one piece of advice that you would give those small business HR people who feel like they're only focus on the administrative. They want to elevate the perception of HR and they want to focus more on the strategic HR work, like, you know, the human experience for employees. Um, if you had to summarize it in just one piece of advice, I know that's a big tall task too, but how, what, what would you recommend they focus on? Well, for sure. It's, it's not tied to a job title. You know, it's not like, I, again, I, my heart goes out. Most of my career has been an HR of one that's small to mid-sized business is my world. But I think if I were to give one piece of advice, which uh, many, many HR professionals in my network, including myself, for most of my career have struggled with is you have got to stop doing things from your own point of view. Uh, I'm a total believer in the concept of design thinking, which essentially puts your user at the center of the experience and design of what you deliver. Um, the research that you do, the feedback that you get, we're really great at doing surveys and getting information from people, but there's so much more to creating a user experience that is user-centric. So when I say stop doing it from your own point of view and lens, uh, I think the best way to do this, you know, I've shared examples of creating shared language, um, storytelling, doing it through the lens of your executive. And it's the same thing of trying to get adoption and buy-in from employees um, as it is really any in any capacity in life. 
do it through the lens of what matters to the audience, to the customer, to the employee. Because once you start doing it and they start to find themselves in the solution or the topic or whatever it is you're trying to do, when they have that intrinsic motivation to attach to whatever it is you're trying to sell, promote, get through the finish line, change management, whatever it looks like, regardless of whether it's tactical work or strategic work, I can't even tell you how frustrating it is as an HR person to spend six months on a wellness program or a year on an implementation of a new technology, which you know doesn't really happen anymore. But you're the one in the trenches to get it across the finish line only to see it not get adoption from hmm. those that you just killed yourself to build it yeah. for because you did it from a point of view of what either you thought was best for them or what was best for yourself. Yeah. So anyway, to, to sum that up, my best piece of advice is get out of your own way. Stop looking at everything from your own point of view and start asking the questions and putting your customers and employees at the center of what you do on a day-to-day basis. I love it. Excellent, excellent advice. Alisa, this has been so awesome. I appreciate you taking the time to jump on and share a lot of your, your thoughts and your insights and your experience and your analogies, all of it. So um, if there are listeners that have other questions for you, want to follow up with you on some of the topics of what we discussed today, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, two ways. So LinkedIn is my love language. You mentioned that at the beginning. I am on there for hours and hours a day. So you can find me pretty easily. I'm the only Elisa Garn uh, that's on the platform. But also for those that are not LinkedIn love language people, <laughs> you can email me at my personal email address, which is elisagarn at gmail.com. Love it. Thank you so much again. And we will drop the links to your LinkedIn profile and email on in the description for this podcast. So you don't have to worry about writing that down if you're listening to that and want to reach out to Elisa. So Lisa, thank you again for taking the time today. Really appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Garrett. Today, enduring companies know that their people are their most important assets and they invest in helping them excel. But often, small businesses with limited HR resources struggle to manage their people, payroll, and processes efficiently and create an environment where frontline, deskless employees thrive. That's why we created Eddie. Eddie is the all-in-one HR suite built for local businesses that streamlines tedious HR processes and improves the employee experience for frontline workers. With Eddie, you can hire, manage, pay, and engage employees with one easy-to-use software. No headache required. You've already done the hard part by creating a great business. Now let us help you take it to the next level. Visit eddie.com today to request a demo.